In uh, one of my favorite classic books, classic trilogies, The Lord of the Rings, um, one of the main characters is Aragorn, and he's kind of a messiah figure throughout the book and uh, in the movies too. So maybe some of you have seen the movies but not the not read the books. That's okay too. Um, and he's a great character, one of my favorite characters in the series. Um, but for most of his life, in the backstory, and then during the, the book as, as well as he appears, he is somebody who has gone into self-imposed exile. He's, he's turned away from um, his fellow man. He's turned away from his true identity, who he really is, what he really is, which is the rightful king. And this is all because he fears the weakness of man. He fears the weakness of of men in this world, Middle Earth, for the power of the one ring. Because the one ring is what has caused the the world in in this book series to be in the the darkness and the trouble that they're in, uh, because person after person after person has fallen to the power of the ring over them. And in Aragorn's own line, his his ancestors gave in to the weakness of the ring, had the chance to defeat Sauron, the evil lord of the, of the whole book series, that whole world, had a chance to do away with the evil of the ring, but gave in to its power. And so out of fear, Aragorn just retreated from all of it. He retreated from his birthright. He had no confidence in man. And... It's a far cry and a a great contrast from the true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the way He came into our world, the way He came in to our experience. And around Christmas time, we're familiar with Luke 1 and Luke 2, and we're familiar with uh, a lot of what Matthew has to say about the Christmas narrative But there's one part of the Christmas story that we often just really rapidly go through or we miss altogether because on the surface it's kind of tedious and that's the list of the begats, you know, in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Christ. But we're doing a great disservice to ourselves and to the truth of the Christmas story, the truth of the Christmas message, if we rush through Matthew 1 and through that genealogy, or if we look past it and go beyond it, we're, we're going to miss a whole lot. Because in the listing of the begats, you actually have the entire message of grace and of the gospel, line after line after line. It really conveys the entire purpose of Jesus coming, and it shows you a picture of the whole heart of God and the whole character that's behind this great God who sent his only son to us. So in Matthew chapter 1 is where I'd like to have you focus your attention. Matthew chapter 1, and we're not going to go through the whole chapter. We're going to focus in on verses 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And what we find here is really a directory of depravity. A directory of depravity. This is the kind of list that you don't celebrate when you get the results back on Ancestry.com. This is not going to make you happy. 
You know, and, and in our culture, in our society, in our world where image is everything, this is the kind of background that people would go to great lengths to hide from their personal bio or portfolio. This is not something they'd bring up readily in an interview. You know, this is the kind of thing they don't talk about at the parties. This is the skeleton in everybody's closet they hope stays buried. That's what we will, we will see here as we look at this list. But again, it provides an incredible picture of the grace of the gospel that we see on display through every part of Jesus' life. And it starts right here. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And right away, we're shown somebody and two people right here that have incredible flaws in their character. If you will remember back to Genesis, you'll probably remember, without too much difficulty, that Abraham, though he did a lot of great things, I mean, he responded to the call of God when he said, Abraham, I know you don't really know me yet, but I want you to leave where, you're, where you are, everything you know, all that you're familiar with, leave your father's house and go to a land that I'll, I'll tell you about and show you about as you're on your way. I'm not even going to tell you now where you're going. I just want you to pick up and go. And Abraham remarkably says, okay, and he does it. So he's a man of great faith. He earns a spot in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. And he's a great man. He's really the the father of the the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. Of course, um, as people read this account, they'll say, oh, yes, Father Abraham. You know, all the Jews look to Abraham as their great father and patriarch. But Abraham was also one who not once but twice told his wife to lie and say, you're my sister. And the whole point was just to save his sorry little skin because he was afraid that somebody would kill him because apparently Sarah was just that beautiful. Even though she was, you know, well along in years, she apparently was just so dazzlingly beautiful that he expected that somebody would just kill him so they could have uh, her as their wife. And so he did that twice. Also, and this is not just his fault, I mean, Sarah was was to blame too, but when they got tired of waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled, when they got tired of waiting for God to show up, you know, we talked about uh, that last week, about God being with us in our waiting and how hard that is, but how necessary it is to believe it. Well, Abraham and Sarah got tired of waiting, and so Sarah comes up with this brilliant plan, right? Tell you what, God's not working fast enough, so here is my, my servant. I want you to treat her as your wife. I'm going to give, you to her, give her to you as, as your concubine so we can make it legal. And I want you to have a child through her. And when, when that's born, I'll just, you know, I'll just claim that as my own. That will be your, your child of promise. And so he's like, okay, sounds good to me. And then there's all kinds of problems that ensue from that, you know? All kinds of favoritism and, and just all sorts of problems because they didn't go according to God's perfect plan and his timing. So Abraham wasn't exactly a flawless dude. Then we have Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, it says. 
and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and there's just all sorts of dysfunction there. I mean, goodness gracious. Um, Jacob, you know, tricked his brother out of the birthright and deceived his father and was, I mean, that was what his name meant, the deceiver. And he was just all full of deceit. And then when he finally does have his family, you know, he has Judah and his brothers, he has Joseph and all those people. Um, we know that he's not exactly uh, good on avoiding favoritism. He clearly shows favoritism for Joseph and, and causes great resentment among the brothers. Uh, he's just got a lot of issue there with playing favorites. And then it says, uh, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Tamar, now that's quite a story in itself. Tamar disguises herself as a cult prostitute. She deceives Judah. Judah sleeps with her, his daughter-in-law, and there's a child born out of that. So there's all kinds of stuff wrong with that picture. You can go back and read that account for yourself. Serious, messed up stuff. I mean, this is like tabloid fodder type stuff going on. Um, all right, and so we go on. Uh, Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab was, shall we say, um, part of the oldest profession on earth. You know, she, Rahab had a, a very colored past. Rahab was a prostitute. So not exactly you know, the person you want to hold up as this uh, golden example, uh, not a person of high nobility and strong, strong character. And she was a Gentile, a pagan Gentile. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, another Gentile pagan who worshipped all kinds of other gods, um, who, who came to the religion of Israel, came to the God of Israel only because of her mother-in-law, and she didn't turn from any of her idols or, or false worship until she became a nationalized citizen, really. And so there's someone that uh, you wouldn't exactly expect for God to, to use just on the surface, especially if you're a Jew. You wouldn't think of it. That God would send the promised Messiah through these Gentile, pagan women. And another thing, women were never included in genealogical accounts. That's just not what was done. They only, they only focused on the patriarchs, the men of the family. So this right here is just shocking that these women are included. Never mind the fact that they have a past that they do, and that just adds to the intrigue and the scandal of this, of all of this. So here's God just doing incredible things, um, sending his Messiah, his promised one, his son, through all these people of questionable past, questionable character, and it goes on and it goes on. Um, Obed, the father of Jesse, verse 6, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah, Bathsheba was her name. Remember what happened there? Yeah. David sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof. He lusts after her. He acts on that lust. He brings her in, causes her to commit adultery, commits adultery with her. Then, to cover it all up, has his trusted soldier, one of the elite guards, one of David's mighty men, and his personal friend, has him killed. 
That's David. Even though he was a man after God's own heart, this was also who David was and what David did. Verse 7, And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Solomon, though he was the wisest of all the kings, though he started off great, he humbled himself before God, he sought God. Eventually we know that he turned his heart away from the Lord because of his weakness for women. And his weakness for women caused his heart to turn away from God toward idols, towards false gods. And Solomon, who was at one time the wisest, most prosperous king in Israel's history, introduced idol worship and paganism into Israel. And as a result of that, the kingdom was ripped away, the kingdom was torn in two, and it happened with his son Rehoboam. Rehoboam was an arrogant, prideful weak king that introduced all sorts of wickedness and caused the very split of the nation of Israel. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the worst king in all of Israel's history. He did more evil than any of the other kings before him, which were, I mean, that was quite a lot to say because the kings that before him were just absolutely horrible and wicked time after time after time. He committed more evil and caused Israel to commit more evil than anyone else. In fact, the Bible says about him in his account that he did more evil and more wicked than all the pagan evil nations around Israel that God wiped out because of their wickedness. We talked about Manasseh earlier in the year. We did a whole series, and we talked about Manasseh at length. And even though his life turned around at the end, even though he is a great success story, remember we did the comeback series, those of you who have been with us for a while, and he is a remarkable comeback story. But before his comeback, he was just about the worst of the worst. And yet here he is as one through whom the Messiah came. One through whom the Messiah came. It's through his line. He's in Christ's ancestry. And Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. Jeconiah ended Israel's line of kings up to the time of the captivity and the exile on a very bitter, sour note. He followed in the ways of the wicked kings before him. He he did great evil, great wickedness, so much so that it was at his time that the judgment of God fell and the punishment came and the captivity took place. So, quite the list. And like I say, this is not the family tree you put up on your wall. This is not the kind of family tree you have a plaque made of and, and you draw people's attention to it and say, look at the nobility that we have represented here. The Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God, did not come to earth with his humanity through a stellar cast. It wasn't just full of of all this high and lofty nobility and just sterling character. That's not at all what took place. Sure, there were some of those. I mean, Josiah was an incredible godly king. As I said, Abraham, with his flaws, he was still a man of great faith. David was still a man after God's own heart. So it's not to say that there weren't any of those strong, godly people, but man, 
I mean, you saw it. It's full of seedy, sinful, selfish, wicked, wicked people. And Christ's very knotted and gnarled family tree, as we just saw here in Matthew 1, shows us a lot of things, but it shows us two major things that are very important to understand and to believe and to celebrate because it's what gives us hope. These two major things that I want you to see from that list, from that very knotted and gnarled family tree. First of all, it shows us, it teaches us, it reminds us that weak, sinful people are all there is. Weak, sinful people are all there is. It's what it means to be human. And, you know, we, we sometimes fall into the mistake and the trap of, of saying, oh, they're, they're good people, but they're, they're just not saved. Well, here's the reality of the situation. There's no good people. <laughs> Humanity does not equal goodness. Humanity equals deadness. Humanity equals depravity. And so, as you look at humanity from the beginning all the way up till, till now, what you see is a great big picture of death and disease, all rooted in sin. Bad people are all there is. Weak, sinful people are all there is. So, as you look through this list of, of Matthew 1, and, and you look all the way through the Bible, and you look through our history... And you look through your own personal history. What comes to the surface very quickly is a very consistent picture of weakness, of sinfulness, because that's all there is in humanity. But rather than despair, rather than being hopeless, there's good news in that. And that's also what we see in this genealogy, Matthew 1. This is also what we see in this line that Jesus came through with his humanity. And that's that God uses imperfect people to accomplish His perfect plan. And isn't that good news? Weak, sinful people are all there is, but, but God uses imperfect people to accomplish His perfect plan. His glory and His perfection are even more on display through our imperfection. What Jesus told the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 9 is true for all of us. When Paul pleaded with Jesus to have whatever the thorn of the flesh was, there's speculation on that, but we're not actually told what that was, but we know it bothered him, it weighed him down, it distracted him, and he pleaded, please, Lord, remove this. Take this from me. Three times, Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord, remove this. And Jesus' answer to him is so powerful, so beautiful, and so necessary for us to hear because it's applicable to us. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. My power is perfected in weakness. 
Church, we need to remember that. We need to remember that list in Matthew 1. As you go through the rest of the Christmas season, as you go through your year, you need to remember the list of Matthew 1. You need to remember the line through which Jesus came. All the flaws and all the weakness, all the the nastiness, all the mess that he came through, because it reminds us that weak, sinful people are all there are, but it also reminds us that God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plan and purpose. We need to remember Matthew 1 whenever we have a flare-up of self-righteousness, which we're prone to. It's so easy to do. Have that flare-up all the time. Self-righteousness. Boy, I'm just so glad I'm not as one of them. You may not say it, probably never will, but your mind thinks it, your heart says it. And out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus says the the mouth speaks, actions come. So whenever we have that flare-up, that nasty flare-up of self-righteousness, we need to remember Matthew 1, and we we need to remember what Jesus did in his coming and what he came through and what he overcame. We need to remember it when we play the part of the Pharisee by our pride, which we do so often when we're so quick to write someone off as being too far gone for grace. Really? Too far gone for grace? Do you remember the Apostle Paul? Persecutor of the church, almost to the point of extinction, and yet Jesus revealed himself to him and brought him in and changed his life, brought him from death to life and made him uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. A result of, of the ministry of Paul is that we have really the known world reached with the gospel. We have the Gentiles um, given the gospel, which leads ultimately to you and me being here today. It's not too far gone for grace. Remember yourself? Do you remember what you were or what you would be outside of the grace of God? What you would be apart from Christ And His grace and mercy in your life, apart from Him raising you from the dead, what you would be? Ephesians 1 and 2 talks a lot about that. It's good to remember that as well as you think about your own life. We need to remember Jesus' warning to His disciples, and He did ourselves, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, Jesus said. The leaven of the Pharisees was always pride. It was always self-righteousness. It was always judgment. It was always writing other people off as being too far gone for God's grace and His holiness and His purity and His righteousness. Which is what makes Matthew 1 so scandalous. Matthew 1 in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, Oh, really? Hmm. Let's look at your cherished history. Let's look at your cherished lineage. Let's see these people. Let's, let's actually peel that back for a little bit. We need to see ourselves, Christian, among the least worthy and the absolute worst of this list. We need to see ourselves as Tamar. We need to see ourselves as Judah. We need to see ourselves as Manasseh. We need to see ourselves as David as he's looking with lust on Bathsheba. We need to see ourselves as Solomon taken and carried away by 
all the things that he was and all the decisions that he made that led to consequence after consequence. We need to say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15 where he said this, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. Every one of us can say amen to that. Because every one of us can say, as we look at our own life, with all honesty and say, yep, I am the chief of sinners. Paul, I know you said that about yourself, but I think you meant me. We can all say that. That can all be our story. Weak, messed up, sin-soaked people in need of grace are all that there is. But, but, above us and above all the weakness of our sin, here's the good news of Christmas, here's the good news of the gospel, above us and above all the weakness of our sin stands the God who came down to us, who is with us in our weakness. That's the good news. That's the the glory of Christmas. And more importantly, not just that he came down to be with us in our weakness, but more importantly, Christmas is about the God who came down to us and who provides victory over our weakness and provides the rescue from it. That's what's so good about Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us, God with us in our weakness, God with us to give us victory over our weakness. And rescue from it. And this is how he accomplished it. This is how he did that. Romans 8.3. Romans 8.3 says this. What the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. What that means to all of us is this, that as creator, think back in history, and as creator, remember, Jesus walked with his creation. Think about that. The creator walking with his creation. That's what he did in the garden. He walked with his creation. But because of Adam and Eve's rebellion and fall, the wickedness of sin and the weakness of sin formed this impenetrable wall between him and humanity. And it just it stayed up year after year after year, decade after decade. But then, it didn't stay that way, then our Creator became His creation. He became man. And so the, the fall of, of Eve and the, the sin of Eve wasn't the final word. wasn't the end of the story. And his purpose in becoming his creation, his purpose in becoming man, was not just to be able to understand our weakness firsthand. That wasn't the purpose of his coming. It wasn't just to understand, just to see what it was like, just to see where we were coming from, even though he certainly does perfectly understand our weakness. Hebrews 4.15 reminds us of that. We don't have a high priest 
who is unable to sympathize with all our weakness, but yet was in every way tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we have a great high priest in Jesus who is able to understand perfectly our weakness, but that's not the purpose of his coming. It wasn't just to understand. His purpose in coming was to provide a remedy for the cause of our weakness, which was the weight of all our sin and the weight of our guilt under that sin, under the law. All of those things are are things we could never remove. That the weight of our sin, the weight of our guilt under sin, the weight of our, our guilt under the law, it's weights we could never remove. And Galatians 4, 4 through 5 gives us the great hope that we all need and the great hope we needed because of our inability to remove those weights. Paul says this in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman. Think of Matthew 1, all those Lines of people, all that ancestry, born of woman, born under the law for this purpose, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Something that we could never earn, something we could never deserve, something we could never lift the weight of sin and guilt off of ourselves to be able to receive to what he did in coming. So Christians certainly rejoice and celebrate the fact that Jesus understands our weakness because he does. Jesus understands your weakness perfectly and loves you in spite of it. Celebrate that. Rejoice in that. Draw strength from that. Draw comfort from that. Draw hope from that. Draw encouragement from that. Celebrate certainly that Jesus meets us in our weakness because he does. It's what Matthew 1 shows us, that year after year, century after century, age after age, God's plan was always to use imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purpose. And so the promised Messiah came down through person after person, through family after family, branch after branch of flaw and sin and weakness. And when Jesus came, the Word made flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among sinful, weak people. And he meets us in our weakness. We see that always on display through Christ. Celebrate that. Rejoice in that. Be encouraged by that. But in all of that, do not miss this fact. Jesus won't let us wallow in our weakness. He understands our weakness. He meets us in our weakness, but he will not just let us wallow in it. We can and should celebrate that Jesus is with us in our weakness, but that does not mean, that does not mean that we celebrate the weakness of our sin or that we stop fighting against it. That is not what any of this means. The fact that 
that Jesus is with us in our weakness, that he understands it, that he loves us in spite of it, that he meets us in it, that God uses us despite our weakness, that never means the weakness of our sin is just okay. That never means that we can just highlight that and, and celebrate, oh yeah, we're all just weak, isn't, isn't that just wonderful? We're all just a mess and let's just celebrate our mess. It doesn't mean we dismiss it. It doesn't mean we don't deal with it. It doesn't mean we stop fighting every moment of our lives with every breath against the weakness of our sin. Him being with us and understanding and loving us in our weakness does not excuse it. It doesn't make it any less than it is. It doesn't make it any less hideous. It doesn't make it any less weighty. It doesn't make it any less the very thing that caused Christ to go to the cross. Don't miss that. Don't forget that. We don't hold up our weakness as something good. And as a cause of celebration, we still should mourn our weakness. We should still mortify the sin that is behind our weakness. Because of the indescribable gift and the indescribable standing that we have received through Christ, we have a responsibility to live for Him and for holiness in response. And thankfully, with the gift that we get, the, the gift of grace, the, the gift of, of love from a God that should never love us, the gift of righteousness, the gift of right standing with God through Christ, the gift of adoption, thankfully, in, in that gift, we also get the ability to respond the way we should. We get the ability, the empowerment to respond to that gift, to live for Christ and to live for holiness the way we should. The responsibility that we have, we have the means of carrying out. Look at Romans 6, 1 through 4. Romans 6, 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul there says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, hey, we've got grace. We're good to go. We can just, we can just sin and, and know that, hey, we're just weak after all. And we don't really need to put a lot of energy into guarding against sin. We don't really need to fight against the flesh because, hey, we've got the grace of God. God is with us in our weakness. God loves us in our weakness. God meets us in our weakness through Christ. And through Christ, we have grace. So we're good. So sin's not really that big of a deal. No. Look at what Paul says in response to such a a horrible type of logic. By no means, or some of your translations might say, God forbid. In other words, no, absolutely not. Wrong. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, which happens at the moment of your salvation, 
Whenever you commit your life to Christ and say, yes, Jesus, I believe you are the Savior, you are the Lord, I want you to be my Savior and Lord, here's my life. Whenever you've done that, you're baptized into Christ. You become part of Him and Him part of you. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. Don't miss this. In order that, here's the purpose of being baptized into His death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk, might live in newness of life. See, we have a responsibility to all that we have received. The fact that Jesus is with us in our weakness, that He meets us there, that He loves us in spite of it, that He uses us despite of it, does not excuse our responsibility to live for Him in response. Second Corinthians five seventeen and 21, Paul speaks to that along the same line of thought, and he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, you don't have to stay in your weakness. Yes, we all have the weakness of sin that we contend with and deal with all through our lives. From the moment we are saved until Christ calls us home by death or comes for us. We will strive against the flesh. We will contend with it and we will, we will lose the fight sometimes. But that doesn't mean we don't have the ability to overcome it. It doesn't mean that we don't have the ability to still choose not to give in to the weakness of our sin because we do. We've been freed from the slavery and the chains of our sinful nature. Before Christ and outside of Christ, you don't have any means of resisting. Resistance is futile. You have no hope but to keep sinning and keep giving in to the weakness of your flesh and sin. But when you give your life to Christ, He gives you His victory over the weakness of your sin. And He gives you the ability to choose it and to live in it. Verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5, is the the reason that we have that confidence, the reason we have that reality, the means by which we have it. Paul says there, He, God the Father, made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that... The whole purpose of that was this, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, it's available to us. We can choose it. We can experience it. We can walk in it. And that's exactly what we should do. That's our responsibility. That's our response. It's what Paul says in Romans 12.1, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, my brethren, I plead with you, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable act of service or worship. Christian, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus 
added our humanity to his divinity. He took our sin to himself. He paid its penalty. He conquered its power. And he constantly provides his presence in our weakness and his power over it. That's the message of Christmas. And that's what it means that Jesus is with us in our weakness. The only, the only question there is in all that is, how will you respond? How are you responding? That's the question I leave you with. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for being a God who who despite the imperfection that we have, despite the unbelievable weakness of our flesh, despite the unbelievable propensity we all have to give in to the weakness of sin and to turn away from you time and time again, you don't just give up on us. You sent your Son, your, your only Son, whom you love more than we can even fathom. You sent Him by means of weak, sinful people. You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to at all. I mean, Jesus could have just appeared on the scene, ready to rule, ready to reign, even just ready to go to the cross. It could have all happened that way. But you chose to make him one of us, yet without our sin, to show us that even though weak, sinful people are all there is, and imperfect people are all there is, you will still use imperfect people to carry out and bring about your perfect plan. Thank you for that. Thank you for the the wonder of that. Thank you for showing us through your son's human ancestry that there's no one beyond your grace. There's no one outside of it. There's no one beyond your reach. And thank you, Jesus, for you, though you are the King of heaven, the Lord of all creation, being willing to come down through the line of history through sin-soaked people and becoming your creation, laying aside your your divinity, taking on our humanity, but yet without sin so that you could redeem us from sin. Thank you for the gift that you are, Jesus. Help us, Holy Spirit, by your power, those who have received the gift of Jesus to live for him and for righteousness and for holiness in response. Help us to remember and to believe that we don't have to just roll over and give in to the weakness of our flesh that still remains in us because we have a new nature. We have the divine nature in us through you, Holy Spirit. We have your power. Help us to use it. Help us to yield to your power and to your work in us. Thank you that, Father, when you gave the gift of your Son, 
And you gave us the gift of your Holy Spirit. You gave us the ability to walk in newness of life in response to all you've done. May that be true of us. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.